break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 25th of August, 2021. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. Plenty for you here on the show, as always. We're going to be talking about the COVID crisis in Iran. We're going to talk about inflation here in the United States and how it may or may not affect you and certainly how it's affecting the Federal Reserve and Wall Street. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to talk about how some of the lies around unemployment insurance have been debunked yet again. Well, all summer, as states have been Cutting off the extended unemployment benefits Congress set up early on in the pandemic. You've been hearing about how these unemployment benefits were causing a labor shortage. Now, regular listeners of The Punch-Out will know that this is totally false. And as we've been outlining all summer, there's really just no information to back that up. But now we have even more evidence now that the July jobs numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics are out to show that this idea of unemployment insurance being some sort of problem is Totally ridiculous. As the Economic Policy Institute lays out, quote, between April and July, states that cut unemployment benefits averaged overall job growth of nine-tenths of a percent. States that maintained the full federal unemployment benefits saw average job growth of 1.6 percent. Similarly, states that cut unemployment saw their unemployment rates decline on average by two-tenths of a percent, from 4.7% to 4.5%. And during the same period, states that retained the full federal unemployment benefits experienced a larger decline of four-tenths of a percent from 6.1% to 5.7%. On average, states that retained federal unemployment experienced a modest tenth of a percent point increase in their labor force participation rate since April, while states that cut the unemployment had no change. So there you have it right there. States that did not cut unemployment benefits had marginally better economic results than those who did cut the benefits. Now, it's important that you don't put too much into this, but the overall data shows that both sets of states are recovering more or less at the same rate. And this speaks exactly to the issue of the unemployment insurance, that it was just a total canard, that the issues around the recovery were not, in fact, related to the unemployment insurance. They were related to other factors. And the one fact that we and others have been just hammering away at is the fact that the lowest wage job category, which is leisure and hospitality, was also the fastest growing job category. So how is it that the people who were getting the most benefit from the unemployment boost were somehow going back to work the fastest and in the largest numbers? As EPI details, quote, in July, the country added 380,000 jobs in leisure and hospitality after gaining 319,000 jobs in May and 394,000 in June. 
Industry employment has grown by 7.8% nationally since April. This is despite the fact that the average weekly earnings in leisure and hospitality are still only about $22,000 annually, even after recent wage gains. And notably, EPI also relates that, quote, the only states that lost leisure and hospitality jobs over this period were Alaska and Wyoming, and both states cut benefits, end quote. So really, you can see the overall picture here that unemployment insurance was just not the prime factor in how economies were doing vis-a-vis the recovery, and all the evidence shows it. And part of the issue here is that unemployment benefits were always too low and contained far too many caveats designed to make it difficult for people to receive them. So the idea that they were somehow too generous was always based on a total misunderstanding of the strength of the program in the first place. The expanded benefits really were just the bare minimum floor to keep catastrophe away from the door. And as you might expect on that point, a recent study of the effects of losing the benefits found that those who were hit by the cutoffs saw a, quote, large immediate decline in consumption. It's also worth noting here that the $300 increased benefit was explicitly designed by Congress, and that's based on their own words, to avoid competition with low-wage work. So really, any way you cut it, the issue of ending unemployment benefits isn't in any way, shape, or form about improving the economy. It's about making it easier for poverty-wage employers to find desperate people. Well, this Friday, at the super elite Wyoming resort destination of Jackson Hole, the Federal Reserve is having its annual economic conference that features a keynote from the chairman. And this time around, just like last year, that chairman is Jerome Powell. And this speech is always closely watched because it reflects the Fed's views on the state of the economy and the direction of their policy. The Federal Reserve essentially controls economic policy in the United States. So what they think and what they're going to do is very important for big banks and corporations. Chairman Powell's speech is being closely watched for two important issues. First, how the Fed is both viewing the issue of inflation and if they plan to take any action on that front. And secondly, how exactly does the Fed plan to curtail its massive bond buying program where they're essentially just pumping money into the economy in order to make it easy and cheap to borrow and fueling economic activity therein. And that curtailment process is known as tapering. So you may hear a lot about tapering in the next couple of days as it concerns this speech. Inflation, of course, is the hot economic issue of the summer, and you're supposed to be very worried, very afraid of it. Now, there are a whole range of issues that are tied up in inflation, but one thing is that inflation is relatively contradictory in terms of its impact on working people. It means things cost more at the store, yes, but inflation is also actually better for the debts that you have. Now, here's the best way to think about it. Inflation is basically the value of the dollar. So if inflation is up, you need more money to buy the same amount of something that a smaller dollar amount would have gotten you before. If you owe money, that means that as inflation erodes the value of the dollar, the cost of your debts also decrease. Think about it like this. You borrowed $100 to buy a bike. You bought the bike right then. But you have to pay back the person who lent you the money over the next nine months with interest that adds up to $135. But let's say that in nine months, inflation means that the cost of the bike is now $150. So that actually means you've saved money on the cost of the bike. The person who lent you the money can't do as much with the $135 as with the $100 from nine months before. So 
you can see that when inflation is increasing, an average person is getting a better deal as it concerns debt finance purchases. And this, of course, is not good for people who mainly lend money, and their main defense is to increase the cost of borrowing or raising interest rates. Now, these two things work in a delicate dance with one another in a capitalist economy. The economy needs credit to run, so interest rates can't be too high or people won't borrow. But you can, you know, if people aren't borrowing and there's no credit, then you're not going to have the economy running. But keeping them too low for too long usually sparks inflation. And this is where the Fed comes in. Wall Street wants the economy to grow, so they certainly don't mind the Fed making the cost of lending cheaper and easier at various times to grease the wheels. But they also don't want the terms of trade, so to speak, to shift in favor of creditors, or at least not for too long. So they look for the Fed to regulate that dance. And this is important to understand because people who crow the most about inflation being bad are not actually looking out for you, even though they're pretending to. Inflation is not a political issue because it's raising prices for working class people. Inflation is a big issue because Wall Street bankers and other various debt merchants don't want you to be able to steal a march on them in terms of your purchases. Now, the Fed's regulatory process is the key part of this, right? As I just mentioned, it's designed to regulate this delicate dance. And that's actually the root of a famous saying in financial circles that the job of the Federal Reserve is to take the punch bowl away just when the party gets going. So the big question many are asking of Powell is, what is he going to do with the punch bowl? Now, last year, Powell announced that the Fed was taking a different policy than it had for some time, saying that they were not going to raise interest rates just because inflation was ticking up generally, but would take a more patient approach and only act if, based on a myriad of factors, they felt inflation was getting out of control. So in other words, Powell was saying, look, we spike the punch to get the party going, and we just aren't ready to go home yet. But with all the fear-mongering around inflation, some people are wondering if Powell may signal a plan to raise interest rates. Now, how big of a problem inflation even is right now is a key issue, and certainly one that will be a part of Powell's speech. And, you know, there's a lot of different things that can be said about this. I mean, on the one hand, inflation is the highest it's been in a decade. On the other, last month in July, inflation or the rate of inflation actually decelerated. So on balance, the evidence leans towards the idea that inflation happening right now is probably not that serious, essentially transitory and related to the economy working its way back to pre-pandemic levels. But that's yet to be seen. And certainly when you look at the fundamentals of what's happening, it could be a much more significant rise of inflation. But either way, people want to know how the Fed is parsing all this. Now, the other issue here, of course, is tapering. The Fed has been saying for a while now that they're going to start pulling back on their massive trillion dollar programs, pumping money into the economy, which has the effect of keeping interest rates low. So even if the Fed doesn't technically raise interest rates, they can certainly influence the cost of borrowing this way, which could also be a way to address inflation. However, the issue with this and what everyone is watching for in Powell's speech is the impact of the Delta variant on the economy and what that says about the overall health of the economy as well. Of course, an increase in COVID protection measures because of the Delta variant could hurt the economy. But in addition, there are those, certainly me, who think that a significant amount of the so-called economic growth in the past few years is really just a castle built on sand and that the Fed's massive bond buying programs are masking serious weaknesses in the economy, acting essentially like a form of life support. So if the Fed signals it will taper, it could have an effect of slowing down the economy just off of people in the financial world stepping back to see what happens, which then can create a self-fulfilling prophecy because when the economy starts slowing down, then they step back. More and more people start to say, well, the economy is looking bad and the spiral starts going downward. And this is where it all comes together. 
There are very clear issues with the capitalist debt machine. The most notable red flag is that the repo market, one of the largest corporate debt markets, is in the midst of what essentially is a permanent bailout, where the Fed is pumping in as much as $500 billion a day to keep things rolling. The only conclusion you can really make from that is that there are a lot of dodgy debts and banks and hedge funds and money market funds as well are all having trouble making it all work day in and day out. So if the Fed raises interest rates, they could unleash a wave of defaults when people can't make their interest payments. And if the Fed starts to taper significantly, not only does it affect the interest rates, but it also may affect the appetite for risk. And many companies floating by on debt may find that they can't borrow anymore or only on tougher terms, which also may set off a wave of defaults. And of course, a wave of defaults could cause an economic crisis as they cascade throughout the economy and rope in the largest financial institutions that sit right at the nexus of the economy and that are undoubtedly engaging in some of the most risky behavior. So Powell's speech takes on importance because basically one of two things will happen. Either he's going to say everything is fine and we aren't changing anything. Now, of course, everything is obviously not fine. So what that really means is, look, things are generally going okay, but don't worry about the fact that we could be wrong about them being okay over the short term because at the end of the day, we're going to bail you out. Now, the other thing is Powell could announce more aggressive policy changes that will be presented in a positive light, but would really mean, look, things aren't looking so hot and we don't want to end up taking bigger losses by letting you continue to skate on government largesse. So in other words, we're going to just try to cut some of the dead flesh now rather than let the whole body rot. And of course, that will be a signal to Wall Street to either A, press ahead with risky activity or B, pull back and hope that there's maybe a little pain now, but that it'll avoid a lot of pain later. So while it all is a bit complicated and to some degree seems a bit esoteric, certainly you can see how the Friday speech at Jackson Hole by Chairman Jerome Powell will give some important insight into how good or bad an economy we will all be facing over the next year or so. Iran is in the midst of the fifth wave of COVID-19, which, as you might be thinking, is indeed a sign that the pandemic has hit that country very hard. As the news service People's Dispatch details, quote, on Sunday, August 22nd, Iran recorded 684 new deaths, the highest since the pandemic broke out in March of last year. Iran is witnessing an unprecedented surge in new cases since the first week of April, with over 10,000 being reported each day. By mid-April, the number of new infections doubled was 24,000 when compared to the highest recorded so far, which was in December of last year, and that was 11,500. The rate of infection slowed down in May and June, but started rising again in July. On August 17th, the number of new infections crossed the 50,000 mark. Though it has come down since then, the numbers remain above 35,000 per day. And meanwhile, the country has recorded a consistent rise in deaths since the beginning of August, with an average daily death count of above 500. Now, it's notable here that some sources in Iranian media, however, are stating that the number of deaths a day is actually higher, at least a couple hundred people higher than what the official figures say. The devastating toll of COVID in Iran has brought to the forefront the issue of U.S. sanctions. Opponents of Iran's government have been using the COVID crisis to promote the idea that the Iranian government is inept and uncaring. The government has emphasized that it is the crippling sanctions placed on Iran, mainly by the United States, that have resulted in the crisis. Now, there are certainly some critiques to be made here of the government's approach. In particular, until very recently, the Iranian government seemed quite reluctant to impose any serious form of lockdown. 
and certainly not any very enforceable ones. But that, too, can't be separated from sanctions because undoubtedly the economic prices of a lockdown and an already depressed economy due to sanctions influence the political calculations of Iran's leaders, particularly in an election year. And on that point, it does seem notable that the new president, Ibrahim Raisi, has seemed much more open to lockdowns and quarantines than his presser, Hassan Rouhani. And it's also true that the Supreme Leader made some ill-advised and unscientific comments about the trustworthiness of U.S. and European vaccines earlier on in the pandemic and initially banned them from being used in the country. Now, the first issue was clearly a political decision that had a terrible public health impact. And Iran, like many other countries around the world that made similar calculations, including, by the way, the United States, all made that trade off and are certainly paying for it. So fair enough to raise a critique there. On the issue of vaccines, it's a bit more complicated. Because in reality, by the end of 2020, Iran had already pre-ordered tens of millions of vaccines from the COVAX mechanism, which, of course, is drawing mainly from Western vaccines. But the payment for them was held up because of sanctions, which make financial institutions very wary and often unwilling to conduct even legal transactions with Iran. On top of that, COVAX has failed to deliver anywhere close to the number of vaccines it was supposed to to anyone anywhere in the world. Iran has also worked to develop its own vaccines and purchase vaccines from Russia and China and India, and its top leaders have all been publicly vaccinated. So the idea that the Iranian leadership is conducting some sort of anti-vaccination campaign or implying that somehow they were late to the game of trying to buy vaccines isn't quite right. Really, Iran is being hit by a multiplicity of factors. One, like with all other developing nations, it's very tough to get vaccines. We're in a situation of vaccine apartheid. Second, due to sanctions, their healthcare system is already struggling to get even normal medical supplies and equipment and also to make pandemic-related emergency purchases. Third, Iran, as a capitalist country, has an incentive to not implement the best public health measures that would disrupt the flow of commerce and place the burden of survival on taking wealth from elites. And fourth, the third issue is also exacerbated by the presence of sanctions that have hobbled the economy and, of course, are putting more pressure on leaders not to have a situation where people's economic situation becomes more dire. You can't isolate just one factor because they're all interrelated. Iran's case is really a microcosm of the issues of vaccine apartheid, the callousness of sanctions, and the contradictions of capitalism. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.